Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. So a bit of follow-up from episode three, when I was talking about casting, there were a few things that I, I realized uh, after I was, as I was editing it, I didn't really uh, explain very well. So one of the things when uh, you had asked about uh, how to make sure that there's no air pockets in, you know, in the, in the flask when you're casting. Um, but getting rid of air pockets actually starts before you you cast. When you're making the flask itself and you're pouring the investment plaster in, you want to ensure that there are no air bubbles in the in the work at all. And so because it's because the investment plaster is quite thick, uh, think of it like a thick porridge when you're pouring it in. Uh, you get small air bubbles that attach to the to the models and don't want to just come off by themselves. It's not like uh, water where, you know, it's it's liquid enough that, that the air will just come out. I use a vacuum chamber to vacuum out all of the air from the flask. In the case of one of my flasks, I'll pour the investment plaster into the flask, put it under vacuum, and, you know, I'll leave it under vacuum for five or six minutes. And you'll actually see it boiling, and you'll see the all the air pulling out, out of the investment plaster. And from there, it will then, you know, it'll then set, but it won't have any air in there at all. And so that means that the investment completely coats and, and surrounds the part. Uh, if you don't do that, you can, when you do eventually cast, those little air bubbles have left a pocket that's attached to the part. And so you end up with these little tiny balls of metal that are attached to the edges of your of your pieces. And sometimes they're in the most inopportune spot. So they'll destroy a pattern because they've attached to the, uh, you know, the workpiece that, uh, that you've got. Dealing with air and air bubbles is, uh, is kind of an important thing when you're dealing with casting, not just when you're pouring the metal, but also when you're making the, the mold to begin with. Now, one, one other uh, bit of follow-up when it comes to watches from an earlier episode, we were talking a little bit about Eterna, and I was, I was mentioning anybody at Eterna can uh, get a hold of me to, uh, to talk about the Model 39s. I've been going through the process of buying some prototype movements from them. I shouldn't say prototype movements. They're not prototypes from their point of view. They're, they're part of their regular line of movements that they manufacture. But they'll be prototypes for me so that I can start working with them and, and um, experiment with building some watches around them. Uh, so it's been an it's been an interesting process of going through and and learning you know sort of learning the different options that are available to me in terms of the features of the of the movements the finishes on the movements uh, how many I can buy at a time versus um, you know uh, one of the nice things with the turn is that I can buy one or two at a time if I want to I don't have to buy fifty or a hundred of them the Model Thirty Nine range is quite impressive they have something like eighty eight different variants right now all sorts of different features in it everything from just simple time to date to, you know, a chronograph uh, add-on to it. It's been an interesting process in terms of how they offer different options, like the date window, for instance. You can get the date window, you know, typically you see it at, at 3 o'clock, but you can get the date window at 1.30, 4.30, 6 o'clock. Uh, so there's uh, there are a bunch of different options there in terms of where you want that date window to show up. Yeah, the positioning of the date window, with the exception of a big date, it's really just a matter of changing the printing on the date disc. So if you'll be making your own date discs at any point, you could actually put the date essentially anywhere you want, uh, just based on how you lay out the numbers on the, the disc. One of the interesting challenges, of course, when you're buying a movement from somebody like this is how do you distinguish your 
watch made with a you know a 3955 versus every other company that's making a watch with a 3955 hmm. i i know nothing about making watches at this point uh, well i shouldn't say nothing i i know very little about making watches compared to making pens in terms of figuring out what what's customizable uh, when you just haven't done it at all well i think the fact that you're starting with manually wound calibers versus the more common automatic versions right away from the back you're gonna have a different look than most other boutique brands or, or micro brands out there. Yeah, that was important for me. I'm not, I don't mind the idea of an automatic watch, but there's, there's something that I, something sort of pure about the idea of a, of a manual wound watch, something that you sort of have to feed yourself every day to, or every couple of days to, to keep it running. It's not just, you know, running because you're wearing it. But I also like the the look of the the manual wound watches from the back when um, versus the you know having the rotor for the uh, the automatic. So that that'll definitely set them apart a little bit compared to what a lot of people are doing with them. What'd you get up to at Silverhand Studios today? So I've been working on getting my new workflow down for building pens and working on a new model of pen, working out the bugs in that and working out the bugs of using my uh, my new CNC lathe for, for doing work. And I know it's not really a new lathe. I've had it for eight or nine months now, but I haven't really used it for doing any production work yet. Is this the gang setup? Yeah, this is the gang tool setup. It's been interesting getting that getting that working and working out some of the bugs in it. I really designed it so that it could work well for sort of light metal turning and primarily acrylics. I do have a need occasionally to turn things like nickel silver. And nickel silver is very hard on the lathe, It's uh, especially when drilling. So I've been having a lot of problems with that. Does it clog the cutters? It puts a lot of force on the, on the, the drill bit, and it, it creates a bit of a shock every time the drill goes in. So when you're, when you're drilling, you, you tend to do peck drilling. So you drill in a little bit, and then you sort of release... You take some pressure off of the drill bit, and that breaks that chip that you're that you're building up. So you sort of go go in and you peck in. And when you you know when people drill by hand, they do it naturally. You put a little bit of pressure on, then you release a little bit, and put a little bit of pressure, release, and whatnot. It, it makes it easier to drill. Um, so doing a CNC lathe, you have a peck drilling cycle where it simulates that. So you go in for a certain amount, pull back, let the chips sort of pull out of the out of the hole, and then go back in. And every time it goes back in, that shock of of the drill bit hitting the the material again um, puts a, a lot of a lot of shock on the the drive motor system. And so, uh, so I've been having a lot of problems with that. I don't recall seeing any sort of uh, lubrication system. Do you are you no. lubricating it by hand when you're drilling or? Yeah, I I don't normally need to to do any lubrication or any any flood coolant or anything like that. So in my typical operation, I just have no need for it. In the case of of something like uh, the nickel silver, or uh, I've also been playing with some Damascus steel this week, and both of those require lubrication of some kind, um, preferably some sort of some sort of um, coolant as well, because they're just they're so hard on your cutters. So I've I've upgraded to cobalt drill bits, and I do a little bit of uh, apply some um, 
uh, what's it called? Some uh, cutting oil manually as I go. But it's not ideal. So anyway, this is one of the downsides of having the, a home built lathe like this is that it's not really designed for doing uh, doing some of these higher end uh, sort of higher end functions. Now, are you using the Damascus in a new pen design, or what are you what are you up to with the Damascus? When I was down visiting uh, some friends of mine in in Boston, uh, Chris Blue, uh, he he makes a lot of Damascus steel and a lot of Mokumegane, and he supplies raw material for the industry as well as making his own line of of wedding rings and engagement rings and things like that. And mm. uh, he gave me a, a sample of Damascus when I was down there. And, um, so it was a chunk, I guess, maybe inch and an eighth in diameter and maybe two inches long, which isn't very useful for me for doing anything. It's, it's perfect for, for making a couple of rings out of, but for, for a pen, it doesn't get you very far. So, uh, this is made out of, uh, 316 and 304 stainless, uh, that have been, that have been, uh, fusion welded together. And so I took a torch to it, heated it up so that it was yellow hot used a hammer, drew it out into a longer, thinner um, cylinder. So, you know, took it from an inch and an eighth down to maybe 650 thou in diameter. And then, uh, and that, you know, that then turned into sort of a piece that was three and three quarter inches in length. So it's it's enough for me to to do something with. So I've been turning a barrel in the design of this new new pen design that I'm working on so I've I've turned uh I've turned a sample barrel out of that so I'm going to uh going to do some finishing on it and etch it next week and and see how it looks but hopefully it'll look good Nice so this will be your first pen that you've ever made in Damascus Uh I've made a few others for other pen makers they they didn't have the ability to to turn Damascus so I did a couple of of pen blanks for people uh, several years ago, they weren't very exciting. They were just straight-barreled um, blanks that uh, that were being used on kit pens. And so, basically, all I was doing was just doing a, a an OD turn down to final diameter, and then a drill through the center so that it would fit the kit parts that they were using for it. And for the etching side of things, do you have a go-to etch that you like to use, or do you just use acids you've got kicking around? You can't just use whatever you have kicking around. Like, for instance, I have nitric acid in the shop that I use for, for various things, and that doesn't touch stainless steel at all. So in this case, you use uh, muriatic acid, and that attacks the 316 stainless and etches it. And depending on how warm the acid is and how long you leave it in there, it will go from being just a very, very delicate uh, etch, which really just brings out the texture. And it and it shows you the difference between the 304 and the 316. Or you can go for longer, you know, you could go for 20 or 30 minutes and you'd actually get quite a deep etch out of it. And that gets you quite uh, quite deep into it. Actually, I should say that it's uh, it's attacking the 304 stainless, not the 316. Muriatic acid doesn't attack it. No, I've not heard of muriatic acid before. Do you happen to know what that's composed of? Or is that like a, a brand name or... No, I don't. It's not a brand name. I don't remember what it's composed of. It's typically used in cleaning pools and it's used for etching concrete. So you can pick it up at Home Depot or somewhere like that quite easily uh, because you typically use it to etch the concrete before you do other things to it. So for instance, if you're going to pour um, concrete onto an existing slab, 
you can't just pour the the fresh concrete down it won't adhere to the previous concrete at all mm. or if you're going to put a layer of uh, epoxy or something like that onto concrete you can't just apply the epoxy as is you need to actually uh, etch it a little bit and it sort of gives it a bit of tooth something to something to grab onto is this something you happen to have been researching for your project building your new floor in your shack uh no i, I i've uh I, I remember using this years ago when I moved into this house because I the first thing I did was uh, was put a an epoxy coating on uh, on the floor hmm. and uh, while I did etch the floor I didn't do a great job of it I was in a bit of a rush unfortunately and I had sort of twenty four hours to be able to etch and then apply epoxy to the to the floor before. I started moving things into it, so it didn't really have a lot of time to uh, to set up. And unfortunately, the, most of that epoxy has come off now. But the problems with being in a rush when you're doing doing things like that when you're on a move. And, yeah. uh, and of course, I haven't gotten around to fixing it since then. Have you ever used any gun bluing solutions? Uh, I have, and I've never been happy with them. The uh, I, I've I've used a few solutions, and metal prep is is the biggest part of it you have to make sure that you that everything is is really clean everything's degreased yeah no fingerprints oh yeah no no, no fingerprints so when, anytime you're doing that you uh, so i use uh simple green as a degreaser and and that allows me to take off most of the you know the grease and, and oils and things like that and then i'll usually use something like a uh, like a brake cleaner to really get in there and and clean everything out and at that point i only handle with uh with nitrile gloves on I also find that the type of metal, whatever alloy is in the metal, has a, a significant impact on how effective the gun bluing is going to be. So, you know, unfortunately, if you're depending on what it is that you're bluing, you may not know exactly what the metal is. And so I find that some gun blues just don't work well on certain metals and you don't really know until you've, uh, you've tried it. I tend to prefer using um time-tested method of... Um, of heating the the steel to to blue it. So again, surface prep is important. You need to make sure that it's highly polished, that you remove all of the oils, and then um, and then you just apply a gentle heat to it, and you allow the the oxide layer to build up on the outside. That uh, and as it gets hotter, it changes color, and you just sort of heat it to the temperature that you want, and and it uh, turns it nice blue. Now in this case, I'm not going to blue this um, this Damascus. Um, this Damascus is all made out of stainless steel, so I want it to be sort of a high silver polish on the 316, and the 304 is going to end up being sort of a matte gray, a mm -hmm. uh, very light matte gray. And so this is um, this is going to be a, a more subtle texture than what um, what you've seen on some Damascus steel, where you've got one um, metal that's quite dark. And and so you get a heavy contrast with it. This is going to be a much subtler contrast between the two. So is this Damascus pen you've been working on? Is this strictly a prototype, or is this something you'll actually be selling down the road? It depends on how much work is involved in making them and how reasonably priced they are. There are a few people out there doing Damascus pens, and they're doing tend to be doing sort of accents on the pens. So think about basically a high end. It looks most, more like a high-end kit pen with sort of a, uh, Damascus accents on it. And uh, I suspect they're doing that because it's 
uh, turning Damascus can be a bit of a pain and it's uh, it's a lot of effort. I'd like to do more. The, the irony is that the Damascus is actually more expensive than the silver that I use in um, in making my pen. So it's not a cheap solution and it's, it's difficult to reuse. Surprising. Yeah, it's it's because it just requires so much uh, so much processing effort, right? Uh, making the Damascus is quite uh, quite time consuming, and I wouldn't do that myself. As I said, I would get I'd get Chris Bluff to do that. Chris has a great process down for making Damascus, and uh, he can basically make it to to what I need. So I would uh, I'd get him to do it. But even then, turning it and turning it into something useful. Uh, I I suspect I will make some, but they'll be rarer pens. I, I won't be doing a lot of them just because a lot of it I'll have to do manually. Like a lot of the drilling I have to do manually. I, my my lathe just isn't happy with, with drilling out the, the stainless. So yeah, I'll, I'll probably do more. This this one will definitely go for sale and we'll see. We'll see how it does. We'll see how much interest there is in it. Now, we've been talking about Damascus steel for a little bit. and uh, I realize... Perhaps not everyone listening will be familiar with what Damascus steel is. How would you describe it visually? Damascus is a layered steel. There, there are many different traditions of layered steel. The Japanese layered their steel to help drive impurities out of out of the metal. Various other cultures have done the same thing. And so you get these these thin layers of metal. And in the case of, of a sort of a Japanese sword, it's it's a uh, it's the same material. It's the same the same steel that's um, that's being folded on itself, and so you do get these fine layers, but there there isn't uh, an obvious uh, layering. Like visual visually, it isn't obvious that they're layered. Uh, Damascus steel is an alternative where you're taking different types of steel, different alloys of steel, and you take flat bars and you weld them together and you basically stack up multiple layers of different types of steel. You weld them together and and you get the... Traditionally, you'd be using it in something like a knife or a sword where you then get the advantages of both types of steel. So one of them might be a lower carbon steel where it's more flexible and can handle shock better, but it's not as hard, so it doesn't get sharp. And then the other steel will be a higher carbon steel, so it can hold an edge, but it's more brittle and therefore doesn't take shock very well. So you get the advantages of both the sharper, harder metal and the softer shock-resistant metal sort of melded into one piece. Uh, it, it also became quite decorative because of the because you're combining these layers of, of metal together. You can then etch away one of the metals a little bit and so you then reveal this grain structure and depending on how you weld the bars together what shape the bars are in what you do to the bars afterwards um, that all reveals a different grain structure in the metal and so you get uh, you get some some beautiful beautiful shapes and 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 grain out of it and it looks very much like a wood grain when uh, when mm -hmm. you're finished with it yeah it's a good way to describe it yeah, and, and so the other tradition of metalwork that has a similar effect is mokume-gane, which is a, a Japanese technique of fusing different metals together, and they're, they'll be non-ferrous metals. So typically it's copper alloys, gold, silvers, uh, things like that, brass, and 
you weld those together, fusion weld those together in, in multiple layers. And then again, as you twist them, as you draw them out, as you distress it and reveal layers underneath and then compress it again, you then end up with this, um, you know, with this grain structure that, that looks again like, uh, like a wood grain. You can then apply different etchants to it, mm -hmm. different patinas that will affect some metals more than others. And it, it will really bring out that grain structure quite, uh, quite nicely. Um, so that Mokume is also another, another thing that I'm, I'm playing around with a little bit and it's, I, I haven't mm -hmm. gotten to the point where I'm happy with, with what I've been doing with it. But again, it'll be, it'll be something to add to the, to the list, but it's again, expensive to do because it's along with Damascus, it's a very time consuming process. So it's very labor intensive to make it. And then you have the added problem with Mokume that you're also dealing with more expensive materials. Uh, you know, with, with Damascus, you know, 316 and 304 stainless are relatively inexpensive, particularly when you compare them to, you know, copper alloys that have gold or silver in them, uh, gold, platinum, uh, palladium, silver, you know, all of these metals that you're using in Mokume are, are quite expensive by themselves. And then you sort of layer a whole bunch of them together and you then spend hours and hours turning them into this, this sort of sandwich. And um, so you've now taken expensive metals and applied a very expensive um, technique to put them together. And that's before you even actually do anything to it, right? You haven't even made anything at that point. You've just made a sort of your raw material. That's, that's one mm -hmm. of the challenges when I'm making new pens or when I'm designing new stuff is I can, you know, I can make pens out of nearly anything, but you have to balance out the cost of the material versus the amount of time and effort you're putting into making the thing. Are you making your own Mokumegane or are you also buying stock Mokume and then working with them? Uh, I can buy stock Mokume. Yeah, Chris Chris also does stock Mokume. And uh, I suspect in the long term, I'll probably buy it from him. So what uh, alloys are you working with for the Mokume that you've been making? Uh, there's a few different metals that I like. Um, there's two Japanese copper alloys. Uh, one is shibuyuchi and the other is shakudo and one has a little bit of gold in it the other one has um there's a little bit of silver in it and and they look very similar they they look like a you know a nice pink copper when you look at them but when you apply different patinas to them they turn these beautiful sort of brownish gray colors um sometimes almost a purplish color and so they're they're quite striking in contrast to something like silver or gold. Also, when you combine things like uh, palladium 500 and silver, both of them are white metals. And you would think, okay, two white metals together, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But there's enough of a difference between the two and how white they are. And you get a, you know, you actually get a, a, a considerable difference in mm -hmm. terms of uh, of how they look. So you can see that grain structure come out. It's quite nice. Tantalum would be an interesting metal mm. to, yeah. to mix in, but not particularly cheap to work with. See, they get that bluish gray sort of white metal. Right. Yeah, the other problem that you run into is that you have to work with metals that are compatible, uh, fusion compatible, because these are fusing at a molecular level. And so you need metals that are going to that are going to fuse together. So for instance, I know Chris has done some work with titanium in 
I think it was a Mokume. And so it's it's a challenge to get, you know, to get the titanium to then fuse to other metals um, between oxide layers building up and, you know, and then just them not fusing yeah, sort imagine. of at a molecular level because it, that's what you're doing. You're not you're not soldering them together. Some people have done that where they've soldered mm-hmm. the um, the layers of metal together, but that tends not to produce a very good quality billet. Get uh, separation of layers quite easily at that point. Whereas if you get a, a complete fusion weld between the two, uh, then it's not going to separate it. It won't, you know, it won't delaminate on you. Mm. Yeah, well, tantalum being a, a noble metal, I would imagine would wouldn't have much of an issue mixing with, say, gold or silver. Yeah, you'd probably find something that can work with it. Yeah, there's there's usually some some combination of them that would uh, that would work. So yeah, it's just a question of. Mm sort of experimenting and and of course that's again that's the problem is the the cost of experimenting with these precious metals it's uh it's not cheap if it if something goes wrong right mm-hmm. yeah and it's not exactly easy to pull the the elements that you're mixing in and back out and to separate them after the fact if something were to go awry no and in fact that's beyond really what i what i'm able to do easily you can certainly pull especially if you're dealing with with gold or silver you can pull those out of out of another metal quite easily there's various you know acids and things like that that you can dissolve gold or silver into and and um and then you can take that solution and and uh, precipitate out the gold or the silver but at a small scale you know in a small sort of shop scale that that's not really practical so at that point if you've screwed up a billet of material you're really you're sending it back to your refiner and having them do it but of course, the problem there is that you're paying for them to separate out those metals and recover them. So, you know, you might only get, let's say, eighty percent of the the value of of the precious metals back. So, yeah, even uh, you know, even if if nothing goes right, and yes, they can recover the metals, but you're not getting the value back. So, what are some of the mistakes you've made or difficulties you've encountered experimenting with making? Well, the big one is is not getting a complete fusion weld, and the trick with it is that you have to get the the right temperature, and you have to get sort of the right force because it's a uh, you you need the two you need the the pieces of metal touching completely, like you need a complete um, uh, complete surface contact between the two pieces. You can't have anything in between them, so they have to be perfectly clean. Uh, again, degreasing and being very careful about how you how you touch the the plates, and then um, in the few test pieces that I've done, I have a uh, I have sort of heavy gauge steel blocks. So think um, steel blocks that are like an inch thick each, and then three quarter inch fasteners that are then compressing down those those sheets. Um, so I'll I'll go and compress those tighten down the bolts then i'll put it in my 20 ton hydraulic press compress them more and then tighten the bolts more so that the the bolts are completely tight and then at that point i can wrap it in stainless steel wrap put a little bit of um, uh, activated charcoal in there to absorb some of the oxygen put that in the kiln and again depending on what temperature you know what metals you're using the temperatures are going to change a little bit and then you're going to get that into the kiln for a certain number of hours to make sure that everything sort of fuses together. 
you want to make sure that you don't go too hot. Otherwise, then you get this puddle of metal in there, which isn't very useful. Once you take it out, you then have to carefully sort of compress the billet while it's still very hot. But you can't be too hard on it because at that point you could still get it to, uh, uh, to delaminate quite easily. So you have to sort of gently compress those layers together. And then from there, slowly work on annealing it and rolling it down and turning it into into something useful. So, yeah, it's a long process. And and other than doing a little bit of um, sort of a little bit of experimenting here and there, uh, I, I would never do a lot of production work with it because it's like in terms of making it myself, it's it's just too time consuming. There are too many variables, and um, you know you've got guys like Chris Bluff and um, uh, Jim Binion. Uh, the two of them are, are, you know, probably two of the most knowledgeable people in the world for making Damascus and Mokume. And, you know, I can go to them and say, this is what I'm looking for. Make it for me. I believe my brother-in-law actually purchased his and his wife's wedding bands from Jim Binion. Jim is an interesting guy. I, I met him. Uh, I've I've been chatting with him online for quite a few years. And, um, uh, but finally met him at the uh, uh, Santa Fe Symposium this mm. past year. Um, so I had a chance to chat with him quite a bit and hang out a little bit and great guy, fascinating man. And, uh, does some, uh, does some remarkable work. And the, the thing I like about Jim is that he's, um, he's very, he, he approaches jewelry making from a very analytical standpoint. So he, he, he sits down and he, he's figuring out what's going on with, um, with the materials that he's working with. So he's done a lot of research into 3d printing resins, which has helped me out. Uh, as I think you've mentioned before, I've, I've been working on using a, a 3D printer for printing printing master models that I can then cast from. And so Jim has done some good research into the different types of resins that are out there for using it, how to prep them afterwards and whatnot. So yeah, Jim is, uh, Jim is a, a, a great resource for people in the industry. And he also does some, some beautiful work as well. So now Someone else who I believe is also on the, the West Coast there. Just flipping back to Damascus for a moment. Have you ever seen the work of Bob Kramer and his knives? Uh, the name is familiar. He specializes in sort of Japanese-style kitchen knives, but the grain structures that he's been able to achieve in a number of his Damascus blades is really quite fascinating and strays quite a bit from that wood grain look that you would normally associate with the Damascus steel. He's able to get almost like... Um, a checkerboard or almost like a tartan type pattern some arrowhead type looks to some of the blades and it's just really neat what he's able to do but he he did makes all of his own damascus as well he's a master knife maker uh, anthony bourdain did a short series a few years ago called rare craft uh, where he would just venture around north america uh, sort of dropping in on, on people who are practicing some of these age-old arts and then at the end of the show, he'd cook something using one of the, the tools that they're working with to actually make their the physical goods. That... You know, now that you mention that, I'm, I seem to remember seeing that episode. And I remember seeing uh, seeing the work that uh, that he was doing. Yeah. So the, with this kind of thing, there are ways of of achieving different technique or different visual patterns in Damascus, and and a lot of it really has to do with the preparation, how you're making your billets initially. Uh, so for instance, in a lot of cases, people start with um, a flat sheet. So it might be 
let's say a, a sheet that's three or four inches wide and let's say 10 inches long and then you you stack up a bunch of those sheets together and they may be a millimeter thick two millimeters thick that kind of that kind of thing and then as you compress it you draw them out and then you can twist those patterns so for instance you could take that whole thing and you can then twist it in various ways and and that's a common way of of dealing with it but you can also go sort of all out and you can do things where instead of just doing a straight flat layers you can do sort of a checkerboard arrangement where you've got thin strips side by side of different metals and that ends up leading to uh to to very different patterns and and they look uh they look quite nice well once you finish up with these pens you've been working on it'd be good to slip some into the the show notes even if it's well after the fact for people who may listen to this at a, at a later date yeah i'll make sure that there's there's a few photos of these pens this is a new pen design that i'm working on the uh barrels are being made out of various um, various acrylics and celluloids and the caps are being deep drawn from silver sheet and then engine turned and uh, a few reasons why i went with this design one is that it makes a, a slightly lighter pen barrel uh, as you know having uh, having used a few of my pens they're uh, the solid silver ones are pretty heavy and so a lot of people prefer a lighter pen so this was a this was a uh, an attempt to make a, a pen that's a little bit lighter and easier to write with. Uh, it also reduces the cost because now all of a sudden instead of having you know 100 grams of silver in a pen, you know I can cut that down to 25 or 30 grams. So it reduces the materials cost quite a bit, and also allows me to use some interesting interesting materials. I have some antique celluloids that uh, that I've been able to get a hold of, and so I'm able to use that those in these pens and sort of experiment a little bit and the pen barrels because they're all different different uh, materials I can do things like throw in a Damascus pen and it, it sort of fits within that that model line of, of pen it I'm not as uh, I'm not as uh, strictly sort of governed by uh, by the design and the and the materials like I am with some of my other pen designs where I, I have intentionally created them with let's say silver and yellow and so all of the pens in that in that sort of series are you know are all in the same sort of design and then the other the other thing that this is doing is um allowing me to experiment with deep drawing where i'm using a hydraulic press to take a flat sheet of silver and turn it into a pen cap and that helps reduce the amount of time it takes to make the pen cap um a lot of them i was either turning from solid stock or from a cast a cast piece so you know close to being a finished uh finished diameter but it was um it was being cast and then turned afterwards. And again, that's quite time-consuming and costly. So being able to deep draw it from a flat sheet, uh, I use less material and it takes a lot less time. So what distinguishes a, a vintage celluloid? Well, there aren't actually a lot of modern celluloids, believe it or not. Just by virtue of being a celluloid, it's vintage. Yeah, in most cases, there there are a few people who are doing, um, who, are, who are starting to make some celluloids. Uh, friend of the show Paul Burberry he does a lot of uh a lot of pen restoration work and he's been getting into manufacturing some celluloid so he's been experimenting with that a little bit and uh, I'm hoping to get some some celluloid from him before the end of the year to uh, to start experimenting with but the the traditional ways of making celluloid make it very impractical to manufacture at any scale and um it's it's not exactly pleasant stuff to work with Film stock was being made from nitrocellulose, 
It could be exposed and printed with various colors and patterns. Most of it was used for movies or still photos. But it's also very flammable and dangerous to work with. Even transporting and storing the film stock is dangerous. Uh, There were laws preventing transport of film stock on public transit, and movie theaters were at high risk for fires. Uh, The film stock would go up and and tear through a a building quite quickly. With making a celluloid for a pen barrel, what you're doing is you're taking that, that film and you're printing it in the different colors and patterns that you want. And then you wrap it around a mandrel of some kind, so just a steel rod or whatever. And you you wrap it over and over again in different layers and build up the sort of a tube of celluloid. And you then allow it to cure for two or three years. And once it's been cured, you can then turn it and form it into the, the, the pen shapes that you want. Uh, you do have to be careful with the swarf that comes off of it because it is quite um, it is quite flammable. So you do need to be careful with the um, with with what comes off of the the celluloid. Uh, so it was a very very popular uh, before sort of modern plastics came around. It was a very popular uh, material for making pens out of because it was quite colorful and you could do a lot of interesting things with it. And you get this beautiful depth from from celluloid that you don't get from a lot of other materials uh, just because it is so translucent uh, but because of the cost of doing it and because of the dangers of of making it and working with it and the flammability of it etc and pen manufacturers stopped really making celluloid for pens and so um yeah so there aren't a lot of companies out there anymore that are using it and uh, i was fortunate i found a guy in the uk who had bought up a lot of pen material that had been found in a factory somewhere like a warehouse or something and so he had a bunch of it and so i've got you know sort of probably 12 or 13 feet of of this vintage celluloid in different colors and it's all sort of 70 80 years old beautiful stuff it it, um it looks gorgeous and it feels it feels very different than modern plastics Mm do and if it's made from vintage film strips it's actually still on brand for you because it would at least microscopically contain those light-sensitive silver halide crystals all intermixed. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. And the last time I saw you sporting a pair of nitrile gloves was actually walking into your backyard, and you were flipping wings on your your barbecue, which I think was a, is a Kamado smoker. It's a Kamado Joe, yeah. Yeah, Kamado Joe. And you were flipping all your wings by hand. Would you mind enlightening <laughs> planet Earth as to this brilliant means of flipping 40, 50 wings on, on a barbecue quite expediently? I, I'm also a big fan of, of cooking and particularly of barbecue and pizza. Uh, so um, this is something I'm sure we'll talk about more of. And, and you've had the, the pleasure of enjoying some of my pizza and my, my barbecue. And uh, a friend who was into competition barbecue, he was always um, 
you know, they were, when they were doing competitions, they're always um, trying to figure out faster ways of dealing with things. And, and when you're handling large amounts of meat, you don't want to use tongs. It, it just takes forever to, to deal with, you know, to deal with the, the meat if you're trying to sit there, especially if you're dealing with, you know, 20 pounds worth of wings or whatever, you don't want to sit there flipping, flipping all the wings with, uh, with tongs. And so what he uses, um, and what I've, what I've started doing is, uh, you can buy cotton, woven cotton gloves at Home Depot, you know, any, any home improvement store that are made for, made for people doing stonework and they're designed to protect your hands and they, they break apart quite easily when you're, when you're working with it, but they do protect your hands from, uh, from getting cut up and, you know, from some of the dust and whatnot. Uh, but they also act as a as a bit of a layer of insulation. I use the cotton gloves, and then I put the nitrile gloves over top of that to keep the cotton gloves from getting too, you know, gummy and whatnot from from sauces and whatnot on the meat. So between the two, I can just sit there and I can go at sort of handling the meat with my hands. So I can pull off, let's say, a large pork butt or whatever by just grabbing the whole thing and lifting it up. I don't have to sit there trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to pick up a you know, 12 pound pork butt with tongs or with, with wings, I can sit there and I can quickly flip a whole bunch of wings all at once. Uh, and I'm not sitting there trying to flip each one of them individually with, um, with tongs. So yeah, it's one of the, one of the secrets of doing, doing barbecue on a larger scale is, uh, Hmm. don't, don't use tongs, use your hands and, and don't just grab the meat with your hands because you'll burn yourself. 